there, listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode of E Pluribus Unum. I have one thing that I'd like to discuss, and then we'll get into the meat of this episode. So the first thing is something I think we can all work on, is mocking other people's tastes. Think of this situation. I'm sure we've all been in it. You're hanging out with friends or with coworkers, and people are talking about a movie. We'll use The Princess Bride as an example because it's the one that just popped into my head. Everyone's talking about what a funny movie that is, and then one person says, eh, I didn't really like it, or, oh, I didn't see that. And then everyone looks at that person like they came from another planet or they've been living under a rock. How can you not like it? Where have you been living? It's a great movie. And it makes people feel really bad. The same thing with food. If everyone's talking about this great sushi restaurant, how much they love it, and one person says, oh, I actually don't really like raw fish, and everyone looks at them like they're crazy. And actually, this works even better when it's a food like pizza or chocolate or macaroni and cheese, which seems so universally liked. It feels so bad to be that person that everyone looks at and thinks, oh, how can you not like it? As if there's something wrong or deficient about you because you have a different taste. Sometimes we might be the ones who say, oh, how can you not like X? But we all know how it feels to be on the other side of that. When people say, oh my goodness, what's wrong with you? We feel nothing's wrong with me. I don't like tomatoes. I don't like raw fish. I don't like, I don't like the princess bride, whatever it is. I don't know where that instinct is to make someone feel bad for their choices. I do know that when I work with kids at schools or at camp, one of the things that I try to teach And it happened the other day when I was teaching and it filled my heart with such joy. They had pizza for lunch and one of the kids was talking about how excited he was for pizza. And one of the girls said, oh, I hate pizza. It's disgusting. And another girl said to that little boy, pizza's not really my taste. And I said to the little girl who said that, that's a really nice way of putting it. And I explained to the other little girl why it's so much nicer to say pizza's not my taste because then you're not saying to the person it's objectively delicious, therefore something is wrong with you for not liking it, you're saying, you know what, you have your tastes and I have mine and it's okay that they're different. It's a little thing, but we all do it. And the more that I learn and delve into what the Torah expects of us, the more I realize how, even though it might be natural to be shocked and give someone a hard time for not liking something that's liked by so many people, the Torah demands such a high level of kindness from us that really defines our natures, but the Torah demands that we rise above our natures. And the Torah is really concerned with how we make people feel. And I used to not be a very touchy-feely person. And there's often that I'm on the Ben Shapiro line of facts don't care about your feelings, because often that's true. And sometimes the facts matter when it comes to policy and how life works and how to fix problems. But when it comes to just interpersonal relationships, people's feelings matter and how you handle other people's feelings matters. And what you say and what you do and how you treat other people says a lot about you. This is a lot about us, I should say. Honestly, I don't know what the answer is on how to act better, but I just know it's something that we should change our natural reaction to because it makes people feel bad. And we should try to make people feel good. That should be the main thing that we try to work on every day is not making people feel good, but be being the type of person that makes people feel good, if that makes sense. Anyway, so that's just a little uh, something I've been noticing about myself and that I'm trying to work on, so I thought I should share it with all of you lovely listeners out there. What I really want to get into today, though, is Hanukkah. It is the sixth day of Hanukkah today, and I thought it would be fun to just do a little Hanukkah special, talk briefly about the story and the history of Hanukkah, 
some of the traditions and maybe clear some things up because I grew up, well, I grew up in a Jewish community, so everyone knew Hanukkah. But even when I was with not Jewish friends, most of the people I knew had had some interaction with Jewish people. And I know there are Hanukkah specials on TV like the Rugrats Hanukkah special, and there's enough in popular culture that a lot of people might be somewhat familiar, but I also know that there are many people who live in communities where they don't come in contact with many or any Jews, and even though it's interesting that there's a lot of Judaism in pop culture, it's often wrong or doesn't give the whole story. I mean, it's, you know, it's TV, it's movies, it's not there as a history lesson, so that's fine. Anyway, I just thought we'd talk about the history of Hanukkah, and there's there's sort of two histories. There's the history that is what archaeologists and historians and scholars say, and then there are some additional or maybe even alternative parts of the story that come from Jewish tradition. And there's also, I believe, in the Book of Maccabees, the story of Hanukkah, but interestingly, the Book of Maccabees is not part of the Jewish canon of books. It is in the Christian canon, or maybe certain Christian sects, but not in the Jewish canon. So I don't know exactly what the Book of Maccabees said. I never have learned it. Anyway, but the basic basic story, and this is something that both the historical and the tradition agree on. So around 200 BC, uh, Judea, which was the land of Israel, but at the time Judea, came under the control of Antiochus III, who was the Seleucid king of Syria, and he allowed the Jews who lived there to continue being Jewish, and it was fine. But then his son, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, or Antiochus Epiphanes, he was not so benevolent, and he did not allow the Jews to continue practicing their Judaism in a lot of outward ways. So keeping kosher and no more brit milah, which is circumcision. So he didn't allow Jews to live as Jews. And then he and his soldiers also desecrated the holy temple in Jerusalem. They brought non-kosher animals in there and they used, they did improper sacrifices. They desecrated it. So not a good time for Jews, which you could say about almost any period in history. Fun for us. And in the midst of this backdrop, one group of Jews led by the Jewish priest Mattathias and his five sons, who become known as the Maccabees, lead a revolt, and the revolt is successful, and they take the temple back, clean it up and rededicate it, and then they light the menorah in the temple, and then there's only a small cruise of oil that should only keep the menorah lit for one day, but the miracle is that it lasts eight days, which is just long enough for new oil to be pressed and brought in so then the menorah could be lit because the menorah in the temple was continually lit. So that's the basic story. There is some indication, I suppose, from a historical perspective that the conflict was not so much between Greeks and Jews, but between Jews who were assimilating and Jews who wanted to maintain the Jewish tradition, which in essence is the same thing. It's about whether or not Jews could remain Jews with our customs, our ways that we dress and eat and pray and learn, or if we had to assimilate. And it's interesting, just throughout history, there has been a clash between Jews who felt 
like they should assimilate to whatever nation or culture they were living in. And the Jews who have maintained their Jewish traditions despite it all, pre-World War II German Jews, a lot of them were very assimilated and they were Jewish only by name or by blood and felt like they were German citizens and not Jews. And yet those in the bloodbath that the Nazis wrought on Germany, it did not matter whether one was a practicing Jew or just one by genetics. They wanted to rid the world of all Jews. And that has been true, unfortunately, throughout history, that when when people come for the Jews, often they come for the Jews, regardless of how observant or outwardly religious they are. That was a fun turn. Anyway, so that is the basic story of Hanukkah. There's one other interesting side story that happens before the revolt by the Maccabees. There's a story of uh, Hannah and her seven sons, and the story is that Hannah's seven sons are brought before the king, and each is told to worship an idol. And if the sons worship an idol, then they will be spared. And each son, going from the oldest to the youngest, refuses to worship an idol and is then killed. That might sound harsh, not the idea of the king acting that way because kings are capricious and they kill people probably for way lesser offenses. But the idea that a Jew would say, no, I'm not going to pray to this idol because in your mind, you might be thinking, well, just do it, but don't mean it. Usually in Judaism, saving a life is above all else. We can break the Sabbath to save a life. We can break most commandments in order to save a life because saving a life is of the utmost importance. But there are three commandments that we cannot break, even if it's to save a life. The first is murder. So if you're in some sort of situation where someone says, you know, maybe you're a hostage or something, kill this person and you can live, you're not allowed to kill that person to save your own life. The second is adultery, which probably sounds really crazy to people given the world we live in, but marriage is sacred. And so to break that sacred bond through adultery is unacceptable. And the third is worshiping idols. You cannot worship idols. You cannot save your life. You're supposed to be a martyr. Now, is God all-forgiving and all-knowing? And if there are people who don't have the strength of character when faced with a sword or a gun to not pretend, I mean, there's the Muranos in Spain who during the Inquisition converted to Christianity but continued to live secretly as Jews. Obviously, God has the infinite wisdom to be forgiving to those people. But in general, those three things we're not allowed to save our lives for. So anyway, that's the story of Hannah and her seven sons. So not a great time for Jews. Temple desecrated and not allowed to live outwardly in the traditions with the traditions that have really kept the Jews over the past 2,000, 3,000 years. And it's actually really amazing to be Jewish because a lot of our holidays are about celebrating the conquering of darkness through God and light and prayer, Passover and Purim and Hanukkah are all celebrations of a really dark time in Jewish history that were overcome. In fact, so much so that there's a Jewish comedy song that basically goes, they tried to kill us, we survived, let's eat, which is how a lot of our holidays are, especially the let's eat part. So that's the story of Hanukkah. How do we celebrate it today? Well, I'm sure most of you have seen a menorah or a Hanukkiah. So that is to represent the miracle of that small cruise of oil lasting for eight days, as opposed to just one. In the temple, the menorah only had seven branches, but our menorahs today have eight branches, plus the shamish, which is the, usually it's one in the middle or it could be one on the end. And we use that candle to light the other eight. We count up. 
So the first night we light one candle, the second night two, third night three, etc. In fact, there was debate when Hanukkah was first introduced as a celebration between two great rabbis, Hillel and Shammai, whether we should light up, so one and then two and then three, or count down, so the first night eight, second night seven, etc. And it was decided that we should light up. It's just better, you know, to be counting up to something and to be adding more light. So we light the menorah for eight nights. We say two blessings when we light the menorah. And then the really interesting part of Hanukkah is that we place the menorah in a window or by a front door. There's this idea of publicizing the miracle, letting people know that we are celebrating Hanukkah and reminding people of the miracle or if people don't know the story, then it's a way to invite them to ask questions and to be curious. And especially, I shouldn't say especially this year, all the time and always, the world is full of darkness, so Hanukkah adds a little bit of light into the world. There's this really beautiful picture that I'm sure if you Google right now, menorah during Nazi Germany, it'll come up on Google. There's this really beautiful picture of a menorah in a window across the street from some building that is lined with Nazi flags. It's somewhere in Germany in the late 1930s, and it's a really beautiful example of light doing its best to overcome the darkness. As Martin Luther King himself said, Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. That's a really important concept also in Judaism that even the smallest little spark can light up a room. And with candles in particular, they don't diminish when they light someone else, which is a really beautiful idea that we can learn from for ourselves, that when we give of material things, it is finite. But if we give of ourselves, of the of our soul and the spark of life and goodness that we have within us, we can ignite as many people as we want without diminishing. And in fact, as you know, sometimes when two candles come together, they sort of flare up for a second and it goes into a really big flame before it settles down. So not only can we keep on giving without decreasing our own, but we can actually increase our own by giving. So that's just a little bit about what the menorah represents. We also play with dreidels. That's pretty common. I just learned. So the traditional story with dreidels is that they were toys that were kept around so that during this time in Judea, when Jews were not allowed to study Torah, they would do it in secret. But then if soldiers would come around or authorities, they would quickly hide what they were learning and just show that they were playing with these dreidels. So that's why we play with dreidels. And on a dreidel, there are four letters in Hebrew, uh, Nun Gimel He Shin, which stands for Neskadol Hayasham, which means a great miracle happened there. In Hebrew, the last letter is a Pe, which means Po, so it's a great miracle happened here, a reminder of the miracle of the Hanukkah story. But I just learned that dreidels or spinning tops and gambling games are not specific to Jews, which makes sense. People gamble and play, someone was commenting that's very similar to a die because it has different sides with different indications on each side. So it's a very old toy used for gambling and other things. But I don't know if it really matters what the origins are because sometimes things can change. And in Judaism, we took this thing that had to do with gambling and now it means something. A great miracle happened there. Remember the miracle? We took something mundane and made it holy and that's, or at least made it special. And I think that's really cool. Like sometimes historians like to point out that things are not exactly as it says in the Bible or as people, as tradition understands it to be. But the beautiful thing is that we have the tradition and the tradition we have created it to mean something and it's a good meaning. And I think that's ultimately more important than whether or not dreidels were actually played with then or not. What else about Hanukkah? We eat fried foods because of the miracle of the oil lasting eight days. So that's where you get your potato latkes 
and also we eat donuts. I don't think people know as much about donuts, but uh, jelly donuts in particular are really popular. There's very rarely a Jewish holiday where food and good food is not involved. Even Passover, people might complain about matzah, but you also get brisket and matzah ball soup. So food and Jews go together very commonly. Today, a lot of people just think that Hanukkah is a Jewish version of Christmas, and it's not. They happen to be around the same time. Interestingly, Christmas is on the 25th of December. Hanukkah is on the 25th of the Jewish month of Kislev, so they don't always fall at the same time on the uh, Gregorian calendar because the Jewish calendar is on a lunar cycle and it's not the same, but it is interesting that they're both on the 25th. The Jewish date, that is the day that the revolt was won, which, by the way, is the other miracle. People always think of the miracle as the light lasting for eight days, but the bigger miracle, in a way, is the small band of Jewish Maccabees overcoming a great Greek army. So, but Hanukkah means Hanu Chafhei, so they rested on the 25th. So that's an interesting meaning of the word Hanukkah. Um, but it's not Jewish Christmas, and there are similarities um, in the gift giving, though I believe the gift giving is more of a modern idea because in the U.S. in particular, but also in other places, Jewish parents were up against their kids having a lot of non-Jewish friends getting presents, so then they had to compete. People always ask, oh, so Hanukkah's eight days, you get eight presents? There's no rule. Family traditions. Some people, yes. You might get eight small presents. Some people, no. Some people don't give presents at all because that's not what the holiday is about. It just depends. Um, we do, I've always thought, and I don't, I've never found any information on this, but the fact that we put out the menorah in the window and then people put up Christmas lights, maybe there's no connection, but it does seem like there's some, you know, borrowing from each other. We borrow the presents, they borrow putting up lights. That's just how life works. You know, you find traditions that work and they meld into your own, but it just happens to be around the same time of year. And because we're in the United States in particular, people conflate the two, but they don't really have much to do with each other. And there are some people who try to combine them. So you'll like really combine them, not just take, you know, interesting traditions like giving presents, which has become so wrapped up. But like some people will make, will put up Hanukkah bushes instead of a Christmas tree, or some people do put up lights outside. I will say that Everyone is free to celebrate however they feel like celebrating. And if it's to really be part of the community and adds to one celebration, then it's fine and good. But I don't think that Jews, if Jewish parents feel like they need to keep up with Christmas by molding Hanukkah around it, then I think they're doing Hanukkah wrong. I don't have kids yet. They don't know what it's like to be a parent and to have your kids comparing everything to Christmas. So it might be very hard. But I think that if Jews, instead of just going through the motions of Hanukkah, but really celebrate it and make it beautiful, I mean, you light the menorah and you're singing the blessings together. And a lot of people sing Hanukkah songs afterwards. There are some beautiful ones. And you have family over and eat this delicious food and talk about the story. It is a very beautiful holiday that doesn't need compensation. But again, not a parent. So not trying to judge. Just, I think there's, there's enough going on with Hanukkah that we don't need to make it like Christmas. There's no Hanukkah fairy. Our parents just give us presents. I think that's really all I wanted to share. Just to let you all, for those of you who don't know what Hanukkah is about, but it's a very, it's a special time of year. And yes, probably because it's around Christmas. So everyone around us is decorating and people are giving gifts and having family over. And it's a, this time of year is very magical. Whether or not one celebrates Christmas or Hanukkah or nothing. It's a very magical time of year and I love it. And I guess that's it. Happy Hanukkah, everyone. I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to E Pluribus Unum. I hope today's episode made you think or brought some clarity and positivity to your day. Subscribe to the show to always get the most recent episode directly to your device. 
Please leave a rating and a review and share the show with your family, friends, or anyone you think might benefit from a little Torah wisdom and conservative thoughts. For more of my thoughts and ideas I share from others, please follow me on Instagram at conservativejewishfemale or read my blog conservativejewishfemale.blogspot.com. The intro-outro music is Chopin's Waterfall Etude. Have a great day!